0: And this is Datacast. Join me for our conversations with practitioners from the worlds of AI, machine learning, statistics, and data science. Hello everyone, and welcome to a new episode of Datacast, and today I have the pleasure to speak with Dave Beschberger. Dave is known for his expertise in distributed data architecture as well as being a graph database subject matter expert. He is known for his pragmatic approach to data architectures and for implementing large scale distributed data architecture for big data analysis and data science workflows using a variety of SQL and NoSQL technologies. He's the author of Graph Database in Action by many publications. He has also spoken both nationally and internationally at conferences on subjects related to distributed data and graph databases. He spent more than 20 years developing, managing, and consulting on software projects, and is currently a member of the Amazon NetTrain service team, where he works with both customer and engineering teams to simplify and speed up the adoption of product technologies. Yes, Odeb, so welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I'm glad to be here. By way of introduction, uh, I saw that you study uh, electrical engineering at RPI back in the late 90s. So how was your college experience?
1: I mean, my college experience, I think, was, was really great and very uh, beneficial kind of to my career. You know, as, as you said, I kind of started as an electrical engineer, um, and I think that process really taught me, you know, it really continued to fuel my desire for a lifelong, well, you know, lifelong learning um, and always be challenging yourself because, you know, electrical engineering is a relatively challenging discipline. But I think one of the biggest things that I also learned from that was, uh, it was actually something that uh, when I was in high school, one of my friend's fathers said. He was, you know, he, he had gone to engineering school and he's like, You don't go to engineering school to learn how to do a job. What you really do is you go to engineering school to learn how to learn. And I kind of took that to heart. And that really, I think, was a very key learning throughout my college years was really that, you know, that fueling that passion to learn and really learning how to effectively be able to learn and, and understand new technologies and new concepts. Mm-hmm. Um, as you, you know, like I said, I was an electrical engineer. Probably about my junior year, I realized I probably should have gone into computer science or computer engineering based on my interests. Because you know, electrical engineering can really you know span the gamut of different technologies, from you know developing microchips to developing you know the national power grid. But really, what I kind of was interested in was really the boundary between hardware and software systems. So I ended up actually going you know finishing my my degree in electrical engineering, but I, I created my own kind of concentration around basically designing and developing embedded systems. So, you know, really that hardware-software interface uh, was really kind of what I found the, the most interesting area for me to kind of explore.
0: I see. And yeah, so you talk about that exposure to software development. After finishing, you know, your undergrad, within the next uh, 12 years or so, you work as a software engineer across a variety of companies in uh, Montana. So can you comment
1: on sort of this career phase of yours? Yeah, I mean, I think this was really a formative time of kind of my early career. You know, I worked for, you know, a lot of, of small companies in Montana. You know, there there wasn't really large, you know, software development shops or software development firms there. And, and most of the ones that I worked for, you know, had either, you know, a, a one developer or just a handful of developers. So really, you know, that gave me a chance early on in my career to get a very wide, you know, a very large breadth of experience across different things because it wasn't just, Okay, go figure out how to do this thing. It, you know, it was I needed to be able to you know work with databases. I needed to be able to develop web pages. I needed to be able to deploy these sorts of applications. I needed to set up servers. I needed to manage infrastructure. So I really kind of gave me a very broad uh, view of the different types of problems that are out there in the, in the software development realm, and be, and gave me the ability to kind of you know I think that that really led to my ability to being able to look at problems from different angles and being able to use those different angles to evaluate kind of a more holistic approach and solution to a problem Mm -hmm. because of the, you know, that there's different breadth, that different breadth of experience that I had. That's also where I kind of started down my, my road uh, of developing data intensive applications Worked, to, you know, as I said, I worked across a variety of different companies while I was there, but, you know, you know, one of my first jobs out of school was basically working with, you know, Data you know, basically it was a company that built a data collection and analysis platform for pharmaceutical manufacturing. Mm-hmm. This was very, I think, important to me because it really it taught me the importance of being able to understand not only what the data that you're getting is, but really understand how to conduct and understand what you're producing out of that data in order to make it valuable to the end user you know, I always kind of think of it as that spectrum of you have data, you know, you can turn it into information and you can turn that into insight and you can turn those insights into actions. Well, really, you know, in order to be able to make that efficiently, uh, to be able to do that efficiently, you have to not only understand what the data that you're dealing with is, but what sort of analysis makes sense to perform on top of it and what some of the outcomes of that analysis can empower down the road. Mm -hmm. So I think that kind of stopped me for that. Then I kind of worked at a company that basically, you know, did applied psychological research. Mm -hmm. Uh, And this was kind of where I, I would say I kind of got my start with dealing with data scientists, or in data science, you know, what we did there was we made a system that tracked a person's eye movements, and then basically performed a lot of what we just called statistics at that point, but what you would probably consider machine learning nowadays, on that data to basically develop a model of how someone looks at familiar and unfamiliar images. So you know, we, we dealt with, you know, a lot of the normal data science type problems of, you know, data cleansing, data normalization, clustering, you know, linear and quadratic regressions. So, you know, th- those are a couple that definitely, a couple of the, you know, formative jobs I had during that time.
0: Thanks a lot for uh, sharing that high level information on, on some of the lessons you learn and sort of exposure to reading data intensive application. From 2013 to 2017, you work as a senior architect and tech lead at Xpero, which is a Houston-based startup that uh, developed custom software exclusively for domain expert users. And uh, during the time there, you focus on architecture and full-stack development of distributed system and data application across multiple clients. What are some of the major projects that you contribute to during your time here?
1: Yeah, I mean, during that time, I, yeah, Expero. I was working, you know, as Expero as a consultant for a variety of different uh, corporate clients. It is a boutique consulting firm that basically really specialized in complex distributed data systems and UI UX development. Mm-hmm. So, I, you know, I worked on a couple of different projects there. You know, when I started with Expero, they were a relatively small firm and they really were targeted at working with major integrated oil and gas companies mainly in the area of leading edge oil exploration uh, and data processing and visualization of all of the data that they had in those sorts of areas you know those projects were definitely very interesting you know they they taught me a lot about uh well a couple of different things one you know they, they really were probably my first introduction into some some massively distributed big data applications you know when you start thinking about things like seismic data collection or basically, you know, a scientific model outputs, you're, you're talking some very large data files that are distributed, not only within, you know, a data center or across servers, but also internationally and, you know, across basically different, you know, sub-businesses within that company. I also there, you know, because of where we were working in that kind of bleeding edge technology, I really learned to kind of work, uh, you know, so some of the effective patterns to be able to work with, you know, both scientists and academics, on their research, you know, the that that ability to be able to take technical details and explain them to someone who, you know, maybe technical in their own right, but is maybe not the same sort of technical you are. Or, you know, maybe they're not technical at all, but being able to kind of translate those complex technical ideas and concepts into something that is relatable to the person that you're talking to. Xperia also had a really strong focus on on user and user experience. So I got to work with some amazingly talented UX folks there that I was able to, you know, learn a lot from as far as how to approach problems from a user's perspective and turn those user, you know, turn those user problems into kind of actionable technical outputs. I say, you know, so those were some of the projects I worked there. While I was there, you know, we also started broadening out from just those oil and gas and this is really where i kind of started working with some of the big data technologies that i'm I'm, well not only with big data technologies but also this is where i got my start working with graph databases you know while i was there that's where i sort of got my introduction to you know cassandra and spark which was sort of my the first of my uh, kind of where i dipped my toe into the the big data type world of you know applications While I was there, I also got, you know, as I said, I got my start working with graph databases. I kind of, um, you know, they had a few projects that were going on that we thought might benefit from graph databases. So I just kind of raised my hand and was like, yeah, this is a new technology that I'd love to learn. You know, at that point, this was probably 2015, 2016. Graph databases, and especially kind of property graph databases were pretty new on the market. So there was not a lot of resources. So there was a lot of kind of, you know, really having to roll up my sleeves, get my hands dirty, trying to figure out how to make these things really work well for, you know, real life scenarios and real life problems. But, you know, I, I also got to see how they were able to solve some of those problems easier than, you know, the other technologies that had been out there.
0: Yeah, and, and we'll talk about, you know, grab that base in detail later on in the conversation. Let's just say the listeners who are not particularly familiar with some of the big data terms that you mentioned, can you just give some quick uh, overview about Cassandra, Spark, for example, Kafka, some of the tools that you got exposed during this period?
1: No, absolutely. Yeah. You know, there's a, there's a large number of kind of big data tools out there. Um, But the ones that you probably will hear, you know, most commonly discussed, uh, at least in in modern terms is, you know, when you start talking about things, you know, I I like to think them as kind of, you know, a couple of different categories. You basically have processing frameworks or applications that are used to basically run big analytics on. And in that sort of category, you end up with something basically uh, Hadoop clusters or Apache Spark are probably the two most common ones you run into. You know, then you have kind of big data databases, and there's a large number of those out there. But, you know, one of the more common ones out there is what's known as Apache Cassandra. It's a highly distributed, or it's a distributed highly available wide column data store. So, You know, Y-Column data store. if you're not familiar with kind of, I like to think about it, the NoSQL spectrum of databases, is basically you can almost think of it as a a database where, you know, a, a relational database where all of your data only exists in one table. So basically you have rows, you have columns, but there's no ability to join across different tables in order to get data. So any of the data you need to pull back exists in just that single table. There's other big data technologies out there that are usually part of these infrastructures to basically help deal with message passing and, and, and just kind of communications in general. One of the common ones you'll, you'll find out there is, is called Apache Kafka. It works, it does a variety of different things, but one of the things it, it does very well is it you, uh, or doesn't commonly, is it's used as like a queuing mechanism or a message packing, passing mechanism in distributed sort of architectures.
0: Awesome, thanks for sharing the light on those the different... Uh, stages this speaking the architecture and the most common tools being used. So after Expero, you work as a chief software architect at Gene by Gene, which is a biotech company uh, focusing on DNA-based ancestry and genealogy. Uh, and in particular, you led the design and implementation of a next-generation data platform focusing on migration from monolithic application architecture to a distributed low-latency and fault-tolerant architecture. So what are some of the challenges associated with this initiative?
1: Yeah, I mean, so th- this initiative was basically, it was kind of a strategic initiative that, that the company was undertaking to basically make a, a transformation within the organization to basically kind of adopt new technologies that would let them move forward and scale to larger data sizes and faster than they've been able to previously. I mean, what what they had out there currently, uh, you know, it was working for them, obviously, you know, it'd been around for at that point, probably about 10 or 15 years, Um, you know, it was a, you know, basically a monolithic application built on top of a relational database. And it was sort of getting to the point where it worked, but not necessarily well enough. It was hard to make changes to, it was hard to sit there and basically you couldn't make a lot of, you couldn't innovate very quickly on it because, you know, it, it had 15 years of people innovating on it. And sometimes, you know, those innovations had technical debt associated with them that were never cleaned up. So really, this project was—it was basically taking a step back and trying to envision and figure out how we, you know, we could build a, a data platform that would or be able to take us into the next, you know, phase of the company's growth. And you know, there were definitely technical challenges around this. You know, like uh, we, so we were dealing with genetic data, and you know, if you have any idea about genetic data, the data sizes you're dealing with are, are just massive. We were dealing with basically consumer tests of, of DNA. So we were dealing with very large numbers of very large data sets. So even just moving the data was not only prohibitively expensive, if you, you know, say you wanted to move it to the cloud, that was not really even possible just based on the expense that it would cost to move it to the cloud and the amount of time it would take. Um, but also, you know, the computational complexity of the algorithms we were trying to run over that meant that there was, you know... That we had a lot of data that we needed to be able to run complex algorithms over and we needed to figure out how to do this in a way that was basically scalable and efficient uh and provided you know an efficient use of the resources that we had so you know there's definitely a lot of technical challenges that we had you know that we needed to overcome but one of the other challenges was the organizational change aspects of it that uh, definitely when i started i kind of underestimated um, you know, how you know, they say all problems are people problems. Well, you know, that's definitely true. Um, you know, in this case, you know, there was, you know, it was, there was a lot of organizational uh, resistance to being able to kind of to move to a new platform because there was, you know, a platform that was out there that people knew how it worked. And they really kind of understood the limitations of that current platform and how to get around them to a certain degree. So, we, you know, there was a lot of effort that was spent not just on the technical side, but also on the, the people side of that sort of problem, you know, be able to provide them with, you know, input, you know, the ability to give input on what they needed, what they needed the platform to do, training on, on the different technologies we were using, you know, as well as just, you know, time for people to basically be able to make a transition from an old platform to a new platform. So, you know, I think that was definitely a kind of a unique challenge, at least in my career at that point, was not only having to deal with the technical challenges that I kind of had throughout my career up till then, but really starting to have to deal with the the organizational and the people challenges associated with these sorts of, of large projects and initiatives as well.
0: Thanks for clarifying on those challenges. I guess, like, you know, I want to dig a bit deeper on that later phase, right? Like talking about organizational challenge. You know as, as a leader within the company and you have to lead this initiative and basically convincing people to switch the tools technology and and adopting this new framework i guess that, what are some of the non-technical lessons that you learned throughout this transition
1: yeah i mean i, I think probably the most the most important non-technical lesson i learned throughout this was really never underestimate the challenge of being able to kind of make that sort of organizational change i definitely when i started this project You know, I thought it would be easy to get everyone on board and be able to show them kind of, or a new and different way to solve the same sort of problems. And while that was true for, you know, a certain subset of people, it definitely was not true for everyone. So really uh, being able to make sure that you can approach different people in different ways in order to basically work with them to help them come along to a new type of system. In In this case, it was, you know, a new system, a new way of doing business and really listening to what their concerns were and being able to address them on a very personal level. Figure out, you know, it's kind of one of those, really taught me to, to work with people and really figure out what each different type of person uh, finds important, and then be able to talk and speak directly to that, to their concerns based on what is most important to them. Had different people Obviously in different roles and in different roles, it wasn't necessarily that, you know, that the technology was new, but that this would make your life easier because you only have to do, you know, because in your daily role, you have to do less steps in order to do this, or you get the reports back faster. or You get the reports back that are more accurate or contain the additional data that you've been asking for, for a while. So this was definitely a a bit of a, uh, you know, as I said, this was kind of the first time I'd I'd really managed that sort of large organizational change. So so, my, le- you know, big lesson I learned from there was really plan time into the schedule for these sorts of uh, organizational challenges versus just technical challenges. I mean, as far as resources, I, I definitely did a, a lot of uh, reading and talking to, you know, uh, mentors and friends that are in that sort of thing to kind of come up with what some, you know, some of the best practices for being able to deal with this sort of organizational, I don't want to call it organizational chaos, but, you know, a little bit of, you know, when you're, when you're making this sort of wholesale change, there's always a little bit of, uh, unplanned chaos going on. <laughs> you know how, how best to manage that. How best to you know ease people's fears about uh, uh, adoption of these sorts of basically you know uh, wholesale changes to their day to day work.
0: In the summer of twenty eighteen, you gave a talk called a practical guide to Crap Database at NEC Oslo, which discussed the practical aspect of how to apply Crap Database to solve real world business problems. Can you share some of the common patterns and? Any patterns of using graph database deliver in
1: delivering that talk? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I can definitely talk about some of the, the yeah general patterns and anti-patterns of graph databases. I can't remember exactly which ones I had in that talk, but um, you know, it's kind of been evolving over the years. So uh, as I see new and different ones, but I'd say probably the first I don't know if you want to call it a pattern or anti-pattern, but is really making sure that you choose the right solution for a problem. You know, you want you want to make sure that the problem you're working with is the correct problem to use a graph database against, I should say from my background, uh, being a relational database, you know, developer for most of my career and most of the people I work with, that tends to be a kind of a, a common pattern that people are pretty well familiar with relational databases and organizations most definitely are, are, tend to be very familiar with relational databases. People like to, you know, think every problem can be solved with a relational database. I kind of always look at it it's like the relational database hammer. You know, um, the old adage is
0: when all you have is a
1: hammer, everything looks like a nail. Mm -hmm. Well, (laughs) you know, sometimes sometimes it's a nail and sometimes it's a screw. And sometimes you need to step back and take a look to make sure that you're using the right problem or the right tool to solve that sort of problem. And graph databases are definitely uh, one of those tools that it's very good to have in your toolbox and to understand when it's the right time to use them. I'm passionate about graph databases and how they can help solve problems, but they're definitely not the right tool for every problem that you come across. You know, I always kind of like to bucket it down into kind of some big sort of types of, of questions people like to answer. You know, like if you want to answer problems about searching or selecting. You know, if you want to find quest- answers to questions like, you know, give me everybody that works at a company, or you know, how many miles, or find me all the stores within you know ten miles of, my, of here. I mean, you could probably do that in a, in a graph database. Well, not not could probably, you can do that in a graph database, but it's probably not the ideal technology for that sort of solution or for that sort of question. That Those are the sorts of questions where, you know, some sort of search server like Elasticsearch or Solr probably would solve that better or a relational database, something of that nature. But, you know, when you have problems where you really want to deal with things like the strength quality or quantity of the relationships between entities and you want to use those as part of your, to help answer part of that question, that's really kind of one of those real sweet spots for graph databases. You know, if you want to answer things like, how do two people inside my network know each other? Or if you're like, you know, you can think about it from like a, you know, not just a social networking perspective, but maybe you're you're dealing with a graph that contains investments, you know, corporate investments, and you really want to see, what is your risk factor if, if you're doing like acquisitions and mergers and you want to know if these two companies that you're looking at buying, do they have shared investments? Are they connected in any way through officers or, or, or other corporations that, you know, may increase your risk level? You know, and then there's always, you know, the, the, the stereotypical ones, the, the shortest path type questions that, that are probably familiar with anyone that knows much about graphs. So, you know, what is the shortest way for between me, you know, to get me introduced inside this organization to, an, you know, the CEO. Uh, those, you know, those are sort of like the six degrees of Kevin Bacon sort of uh, thought things. So being able to make sure that your problem that you're going to choose is the right one for a graph database is definitely one of the, the common patterns. Cause, you know, like I said, graph databases are great at ones where you, you know, where the connections between entities matter. If you want to do, you know, things like pattern matching to find, you know, patterns of known fraud, you know, if you want to find out if these transactions look like they're a pattern of known fraudulent transactions, if you're dealing with things like centrality of your data, clustering, influence, things like that. On the other hand, you know, questions like aggregation of, you know, what are the average sales by day over the past month? You know, those are the sorts of questions that relational databases are just really, really strong at. You know, another one that, that I always hear that, that I've seen a lot of people go down is You know, graph databases are good at joining data. It depends. That's one of those areas where they get sold. uh, Graph databases get sold very often as being great at joining data. And it's really, I think it's a little more nuanced than that. You know, uh, relational databases are great at joining data. That's, That's what they do. They're, you know, they're built on top of, you know, set theory. So doing joins is kind of what they do. But when you're using those joins, not so much to bring in something like normalized, like properly normalized data, but you really want to use those joins to to navigate through the data to find out the connections. I think that's a better way to kind of look at, uh, you know, graph database problems. Other kind of uh, really common, you know, patterns and anti-patterns is, you know, really understand what you're looking at, uh, what you're looking to actually achieve out of your data. You know, you need to understand what questions you're going to ask of the graph in order to make sure that it's the right sort of question to be able to get an answer. I think the graph database space is maturing enough where this isn't quite as much of a problem anymore as it probably was back in 2018 uh, when I gave this talk. But uh, at that point, there was a lot of corporations and projects where you would basically... People would throw all of their data into a graph and just assume that all of a sudden they were going to start getting all this magical information out of it that they didn't know before. And while while a graph may help you do that, it's not going to be able to answer questions that you don't know to ask. You still have to, you know, you still have to know what it is you're looking for in order to be able to use a graph to help provide that sort of insight. And I guess
0: just continuing on our current deep discussion about graph database, right? And you, you have given multi, multiple talks, you know, introducing graph database in layman term. Uh, one of your talks in 2019 is called Skeptic Guide to Graph Database. Uh, you argue that the graph technology landscape is growing, is huge, and it's also very confusing. And in order to bypass uh, that challenge, you basically try to categorize all the tooling into the three buckets. Uh, number one is graph computing engine. Number two is RDF triple store, And number three is uh, label property graph. So, could you mind explaining these buckets in, in further detail?
1: No problem. When I look at the graph database, bets, it's probably oversimplistic to try and put it into those those three buckets because there's a lot of overlap. I would say I, I find it at least helpful for people to be able to start think about where their problem may fit best, but also where different tools out there in the landscape fit. The kind of first big differentiation in in those three buckets is the difference between a graph computing engine. And, you know, a graph database, which contains both the RDF triple store and a label property graph. You know, the graph computing engines, there's two basic features, I think, of those two things that differentiate them. You know, graph computing engines are really all about handling, you know, processing of the the data using graph algorithms. But they don't handle how that data is persisted to a data file or a database or anything like that. The, The data that those use is stored somewhere else. You load that data in you run some some graph computation on top of it, and then you probably save that result back out to a a different file. You know, graph databases, on the other hand, are much like, you know, a relational database or a document database, anything like that. They handle not only the processing of those graph algorithms, but also the persistence of them. You know, inside that graph database kind of bucket, if you want to think of, you can kind of divide it into two different portions. The first being the RDF triple stores. So RDF triple stores are based on this concept of a subject uh, predicate object. So those three, three pieces together are, are what's known as that, that triple, that RDF triple. It comes from basically a W3C standard that, that really was spawned out of the semantic web movement of about the early 2000s. In that data where you have those triples, you know, for example, pop, a triple would be, you know, Bob would be the subject, is a, would be a predicate, and the object would be person, that'd be an example of triple each of those data, you know, when you store that data into a data store, each of those pieces of data are able to be uniquely referenced by a URI or an IRI. There tends to be a defined ontology around how that data inside that graph is structured. Those sorts of data stores tend to have uh, more complex, basically rules based engines that allow for inferencing and reasoning of those edges to basically allow for the generation of new data. And really, when I think of those sorts of data, RDF data stores, I think they're really optimized for being able to infer new data and for working in certain industries where there's really a lot of publicly available data stored in that format. Um, chemical manufacturing would be one example of that. There's a lot of healthcare data that's also stored that way. You know, labeled property graphs, which is the other bucket in that sort of graph database, uh, the, the bigger graph database or the other categorization of that bigger graph database bucket, Those are a little bit newer to the scene. They've probably been around, I wanna say it was about 2008 or 2009 uh, Mm -hmm. is when they started kind of first hitting the scenes. And really these are probably the ones that are uh, most relational developers would probably be the most familiar with because your data is not necessarily stored in that that triple format that I was talking about before, but really it's stored as vertices, edges, and properties. So you have vertices which represent basically the, the nouns or the entities in your domain. You have edges, which represent the verbs or the relationships between those entities. And then you have properties, which represent the attributes associated with either a vertex or an edge. You know, one of the unique things about graph databases in general and property graphs specifically is the fact that edges inside graph databases are are kind of, I like to call them first-class citizens. And when I talk about them being first-class citizens, what I really mean is those edges not only are as important as the entities or the, the vertices themselves but especially in like a labeled property graph those edges can also contain properties of their own so you know in a relational database model you know relationships between your data are, are, are basically kind of weakly done via you know foreign key connections so there is no way to explicitly build, you know, properties associated with that relationship. If you want to do that, you end up having to basically put a bridge table in between to store that data. In property graphs, you can directly assign those sorts of attributes to an edge. So for an example of when you might want to do that is, you know, let's say you had a graph that just contained cities and roads that connected them. You could have, you know, you'd have cities and roads that connected them. However, the likelihood if you wanted to be able to find the shortest route between two cities is that those roads are not all going to be evenly weighted as far as the, the, the how far you have to drive or how good the condition of the road would be. Um, you know, maybe one is a windy country road that takes 100 miles to get between two cities, and maybe one is a four-lane interstate that basically takes, you know, 50 miles to get between those two. Well, you'd want to be able, to, within a label property graph, you can represent those, basically those comparative differences by being able to actually attach that sort of relative weight to the edge itself, to the relationship between those two things. And that's a really powerful construct that, that property graphs uh, bring to the table. So I, I think that's kind of a very high level look at kind of what the landscape of those two things look like. When you kind of think, sit down and think about it, really, I, you know, I, if, I, if I had to kind of sum it up, I would say graph computing engines are built to work on huge scales of data, and they're really an optimal choice where you want to be able to run graph algorithms to calculate global graph properties or properties that use most and if not all of the graph to, to calculate as some sort of background or batch process. Graph databases, on the other hand, tend to be really are all about being able to process and persist that data for you know, more real-time interaction um, with you know RDF databases being optimized for kind of being able to you know, store data in a defined format and infer new data and property graphs being able to really be optimized for traversing known relationships inside your graph and inside your data. Mm. I know I just said a lot there, but.
0: Yeah, for sure. Uh, and I'll be sure to include the link to the, to the talk that you gave with some slides. I mean, it's really helpful because uh, as you mentioned, like, you know, choosing the right tool for the job is nothing necessary and having that sort of understanding on, on the, the pros and cons of, you know, these, uh, the difference between computing engine and, and in the the two uh, databases is is pretty critical. Going back to your career, after Gene by Gene, you joined DataStax global graph practice team as a Solution architect, and uh, a graph database subject matter expert. For the audience who is not familiar with DataStax, can you uh, provide a brief overview of the company?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, So DataStax is the company behind the the open source Apache Cassandra project that I was mentioning earlier. And they do a couple of different things. First off, they provide uh, commercial support for, you know, Cassandra installations. Um, They also have their own commercially supported version of, uh, they call it DataStax Enterprise, which basically has uses Cassandra under the covers, but then has built on, you know, search analytics and a graph platform on top of that Cassandra database in order to serve about big data type use cases. And yeah, when I, when I was working there, I basically came uh, on board to work with Dr. Denise Gazzanella. She was starting up the global graph practice. And really, we were all about being able to help customers, you know, build some, build and adopt graph technologies to help them you know, develop some of the largest graph-backed applications basically in the world at that point. So uh, it was a very kind of fun and challenging environment to work in to, to be able to solve these problems at, at very large scales.
0: Mm-hmm. I'm curious, like, what was sort of, customer data that, that stack, that, like targeted, like what, what sort of companies such six, some of the crap solution that data stack provide?
1: You know, we targeted a, a large, lot of customers, but basically, you know, the customers that really found the advantages of, of, of data stacks Enterprise were ones that had a couple of potentially different needs. One, they needed the ability to have data that basically will be able to store and analyze data that was much larger than you could fit on a single machine. Um, You know, most databases out there, or I should say not most, a large number of databases out there really are all about, you know, if you want to be able to, you know, add more data, you just need to scale up your individual servers. Uh, One of the, the design principles of how Cassandra was built was that it was built to basically scale out as opposed to scaling up. So it, you know, had near linear scalability as far as being able to add not only data size, but also data processing. It was built with a masterless architecture, so there was no kind of single point of failure in in that sort of system. So, you know, the customers that we were working with were the ones where that needed to be always on, that needed to be able to, you know, have data stored and, and replicated automatically across multiple different data centers uh, for you know redundancy and high availability sorts of things. And they had data that you know was just in the you know many many terabytes of data that just wouldn't fit in a normal you know, relational database workload for lack of a better kind of uh, example.
0: Awesome, yeah, th- thanks for sharing that. And in particular, I watched one of the talk that you gave last year on um, this data stacks enterprise solution called Customer 360, which uh, essentially collapsed data silos to drive business value. So can, can you you know walk through some of the main design component of this uh, customer experience platform? So a
1: Customer 360 platform is you know, we, we call it customer 360, but it really is all about having a, a single, uh, a single you know, database that you can go to to find all of the information that focuses around a single, in, in the case of a customer 360, it's a customer, but it could be a piece of equipment. It could be you know, product or any other sort of entity, most all companies, I would say probably have, you know, lots of different data about their products or their people, their users, their customers, or any of the different, you know, things they work with stored in a variety of different systems. You know, let's say if you're an e-commerce company, you know, you might have some data stored in a customer support system. You'd have some data stored in probably some sort of CRM system. You would have some data stored in a shipping system, some data about, you know, a specific customer stored in an order management system, you know it would be spread out among these different data silos so being able to get a holistic view of how a customer has interacted with your platform isn't something that's very easy to do what a customer 360 does uh solution does is really it's it's built on this concept of a knowledge graph that's kind of universal to different graph database solutions and that is all about being able to basically link those different disparate data sources together to be able to provide links out to those you know to be able to provide or easy access and links out to those where those customers sit in those different data sources. We can kind of think of this as a multi-tiered sort of system, where you know, really at the bottom, you kind of have this concept of a data ingestion platform. You know, this is where you know your, your data engineers probably live. This is where they're trying to get you know connect data from data silo A to data silo B to run reports, or you know, data silo B to data silo C, so they can be able to generate some other additional information. Well, you know, customer 360 really provides them an easy way to be able to link those different pieces of data together in such a way that they're able to easily, that you're able to then easily connect those entities together to be able to create, you know, something like reports or things like that. You know, you kind of have a middle layer that I also like to think of is, you know, this is where, you know, your data scientist team and where your, your other knowledge workers tend to live. And where this is where you want to be able to look at those connections between, you know those different pieces of data and be able to enrich those data connections. Maybe you're working with something like, uh, as I said, an e-commerce system, and you want to be able to use those different data connections to be able to figure out how to personalize recommendations for those sorts, uh, for a specific user. Or you want to be able to use that information to be, to feed into like a machine learning or an AI type pipeline. So you can, you know, use those the connectedness of those data across those different platforms to be able to enrich that your data model and to be able to, you know, sense and adapt to changes as that customer moves through the different phases of the life cycle of working with your your company, for example. You know, then at the top, there's kind of this, you know, there's the end user. There's the end user that actually is using your system, you know, uh, be it the person that's, you know, in the case of the e-commerce side I was talking about, be it the, uh, you know, the call center person that's taking the call and wants to be able to see that not only has this person Called about a problem, but they've written three emails about it and they've gotten, you've gotten a refund, but that refund has never or hasn't been processed yet. You know, being able to see all of that information quickly and easily in a single view of that customer. To the actual end user themselves, where they're really looking to, you know, be able to get those hyper personalized recommendations based on how they've interacted with your different systems before, you know if all of a sudden you're, um, let's say, you know, to, use, to continue down the uh, customer support track, you're using a, a, a chat bot to interact with a customer support system. Well, if you've already asked me you know, how, if I already know that this order doesn't, hasn't been shipped yet, well, I want to be able to quickly and easily tell, you know, ha- have that chat bot respond back to me that, oh, this order hasn't been shipped for these reasons versus me having to dig through you know, as, as the end user to dig through, you know, multiple different screens to find out these details and get frustrated along the way. So it's kind of, uh, you know, it's a platform that basically allows for connecting these data silos together, For allows different users to use those connections to basically empower themselves to do their jobs. Yet again, that's kind of a lot.
0: But. No, no, uh, that's really what I, I guess the listeners want to hear, right? Because the details is actually what provided Jewish the knowledge. And I guess one of the things that really caught what you mentioned is that that idea of multi-model, so like you try to you know provide a holistic view to customer, and seems like this platform enable you to like capture like all these different sources of data coming from you know where starch and then, then in order to like fit that into the the final uh, algorithms to to provide the personalization, that recommendation, right? And um, yeah, like the design of, of this custom to platform enable you to do that scalable and and accurate way since um april 2020 you have been a senior graph architect at uh, aws how has your experience been so far
1: i mean uh, so i uh, spent a little over five months now that i've I've been here on the team here at aws and i'm really really enjoying my experience it's you know i I get every, every day i get to go in and work with really really intelligent people to solve complex and interesting customer problems um you know with this i'm also given the ability to kind of an opportunity to experiment and contribute to a variety of different things,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and you know it's it's fun. You know, working at, it's such uh, working in a company like AWS where you basically have all these different Lego pieces uh, that you're able to connect together to build complex solutions to problems. One of the things you know, ju- just to kind of com- you know compare and contrast it to to my work, at, I was doing at Datastax. You know, at Datastax, you know, we sold a database. But, you know, at AWS, I, I you know, was recently working on, on a problem where it wasn't just working with how can I solve this with, you know, with the database technology we have, but really it was integrating not only, uh, you know, the database Amazon Neptune into the solution, but being able to integrate that with other NLP technologies and, and AI ML technologies Um, like basically Comprehend, which is an NLP technology and uh, Lex, which is a chatbot technology to really solve kind of the whole problem you know, the whole full stack problem around how do I actually build a system that, you know, can, in in that case, it was a a demonstration application where we basically uh, scraped blog posts, took that semi-structured data, created a knowledge graph out of it and then built a chat interface on top of it. So maybe I don't have all of the pieces available to solve that sort of problem. It's definitely, I think, a very unique and interesting way that you can kind of, a difference, you know, between working at AWS and some other uh, companies that I've worked in in the past. But really, you know, I'm liking my job because my job, when it comes down to it, is my job is to help our customers succeed and be successful in the projects they're working on. So I'm given a lot of leeway to be able to help, you know, people work with customers to really make them happy with what we're doing and to be able to take the learnings from that back into making our product better.
0: Awesome, yeah, that sounds like you really enjoyed your time and uh, a company of uh, Amazon skill definitely have had, like abundant resources for you to you know, maximize customer experience. So outside of work, um, you're also currently finishing a technical book with Manning called Grab Database In Action. Um, the book teaches readers everything to know about reading and running application powered by grab databases. What has been the biggest challenge that you encountered during the writing process thus far?
1: I mean, I, I would say that it's, it was harder than I ever expected it to be. Uh, even, you know, talking to other people before I started this process, they're like, oh, it's, it's going to be hard. It's going to be a lot of work. But it's definitely been um, more work than even I expected, even knowing that. I, I definitely underestimated the amount of time and effort it would be required to really create a, a good teaching manuscript for, for this sort of thing. You know, this book has definitely been kind of a passion project for me. I, you know, I would definitely say if you're going to go into building, go into writing any sort of tech book, make sure it is a passion project for you, because you know, for the amount of time and effort you put in, it's unlikely you're going to see a huge return back on that sort of investment. But really, I kind of look at this as this is the book I wish I had when I started working with graph databases. So you know, it's kind of a passion for me to be able to make this be able to make graph databases more accessible and easier for others to use moving forward. And, and one of the ways I, I thought I could contribute to that was to be able to basically take what I had learned and put it down in some paper that other people can learn from as well. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I like to think of this book is it's everything a relational database developer needs to know in order to build graph backed applications, because, you know, building graph backed applications really requires uh, not only uh, learning the technology, but also, a bit of learning how to think differently about a problem. Your problems are no longer, it's not an entity only mindset, it's really an entity and relationship mindset that you kind of have to switch to. My hope is that this book uh, will help people get further along down that track uh, faster and basically reduce some of the frustrations that I felt when I was starting with graph databases to a point where you know it becomes uh, much more commonplace for customers to adopt the, them moving forward.
0: I see. You also uh, have a co-author of this book, right? Can, can you talk a bit about sort of the working relationship with him?
1: Yeah, my co-author. Uh, my co-author was actually a colleague of mine uh, when I was working at Xperia, is where I first met Josh. Uh, we both kind of started down the, the graph database path uh, at the same time. He was, a, he was a little bit ahead of me. He'd worked on a few projects by the time I got started. But doing a lot of, you know, kind of my, my early learnings of that, uh, we were both kind of working and struggling with through the same sorts of problems. You know, he, he, he's become a, you know, a good friend since then. And, uh, well, he was a good friend then. But now, you know, we've become, we've maintained a good friendship since then. And, you know, as I was working through writing this book, I, I'd been working for it on, on it for oh, about nine months when I realized I would really benefit from having a co-author come and join on the book with me. Um, not only did it, you know, reduce to some level the workload, but I think what it really did was it, it provided another perspective to a lot of the information that I was teaching mm-hmm. to really kind of make that information more applicable across a larger uh, audience. You know, much like myself, Josh has spent a lot of time working and building graph-backed applications and, and teaching others to do the same. So kind of getting a different perspective on, on teaching the same material, I think really in the end, helped the, the, materi- the, the end material of the book be much more approachable for, for a larger variety or a larger uh, set of people. In the book,
0: all examples are presented in the open source uh, Apache TinkerPop framework and the Grammarian language. Can you briefly explain this framework for the uninitiated?
1: Yeah, no, no problem. So uh, the TinkerPop framework, it's an open source framework. It's, one of, it's, an, it's a top-level Apache project. Um, and it basically provides a set of APIs, a server, a reference implementation, as well as, as a query language known as Gremlin. Gremlin is an imperative query language, so it's a little different than um, most of the other query languages that you probably are familiar with that are like SQL, which you know, are kind of declarative. With Gremlin, you're really focusing on how uh, you move through, or you know, you're really specifying how you're, how you're moving through your data in order to get from uh, your start point to your end point. I kind of like to say it really helps if you of thinking it more in the terms of a string processing engine than a query engine. I mean, th- this was actually a, a, quite a point of discussion and thought when I was really coming up with the idea for this book was really what query language to use. You know, one of the things going on in the, basically the graph space is that it's, it's relatively, you know, an immature, as far as database technologies go. So there hasn't, you know, as I said, it's been around some, you know, 10-ish years for the, for property graphs, just not very long in, in the data space. Uh, there, there's not a lot of settled upon standards. So, you know, there's a couple of different query languages out there. There's a lot of databases that have their own unique query languages associated with them. So I needed to choose one in order to work with. So I really wanted to choose one that was not going to necessarily box uh, our, u- our readers into a, a single database. Um, so I chose the open source TinkerHop framework partially for that reason of it was, you know, it's entirely open source. There's an open source, you know, throughout the book we use the Kremlin query language, the Gremlin console and Gremlin server uh, to do this. All of these are completely open source. Anybody can go use them. This framework is also implemented by uh, 20 some databases out there. Um, So it's relatively transportable across different data sources. The other reason I did was I, I think from a learning perspective, using that imperative query language that forces you to think about how you're moving through your data in order to get from point a to point b really makes for a better teaching plan because you have to you know you're forced up front to think about these sorts of things versus uh, you know a lot of declarative query language you just kind of specify what you want and the optimizer does it for you which works really really good until it doesn't work Anymore, and then you really have to kind of go back and try and, you know, I don't know how many people have ever tried to go back and understand like the execution plan of a complex SQL query. It takes a while. There's definitely a lot of uh, learning that you end up having to kind of go back and do. Whereas, you know, starting from the very beginning, thinking about those sorts of things was something that I thought was very important for users to, to really kind of make that, to help that mindset switch from, uh, you know, relational database mindset to a graph database mindset. Awesome. Yeah, thanks for sharing that.
0: I'll be sure to include the link to um, the book on on my new website on the show notes, and um, there'll be a discount code for anyone who, um, you know, interested in purchasing the early access version, and hopefully uh, the book will be complete soon. You know, they can take a look and and, and learn more.
1: It should be out here. Fingers crossed. It should be being published any day now. It should should be available uh, in its final form in the next couple of weeks here, for sure.
0: I know that you also put the code of the book on, on your GitHub, so I include that in, in the show notes as well. Lastly, what are some of the technological trends in big data and uh, distributed system that you are most excited about at the moment?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think, I think there's kind of three here that I, I'd kind of highlight at the moment. The first one obviously being graph databases, as I kind of said, that's sort of my passion. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm really excited to see how we kind of move into what I, what I think is kind of the next phase of, of graph databases. You know. For the past few years, graph databases have been, I think, very hyped up as as far as what they can actually, what sort of problems they can actually solve. So I think we're starting to get to a point where where that hype is dying. You know, people don't necessarily need to hype it up as much and people are starting to see where the real good use cases for them are and where they're they're not as useful. So being able to kind of start to see the use cases being accepted into the enterprise and not as it is a more of a mainstream technology solution than kind of a, a niche player like they are in a lot of cases. I think part of that goes along with that as well as the standardization and the maturation of, the, of specifically the property graph database space. I think there's a couple of interesting areas of work going on here. There's a lot of work been going on around standardization of uh, the schema working group. It's been led by uh, Juan Cicada as well as is a, a variety of others. There is an initiative out there called GQL to come up with a a standardized property graph query language uh, that I'm definitely watching uh, with a lot of interest. And then a little more on on kind of the the, the cutting edge aspect of this. Um, There's been a lot of work going on with algebraic property graphs and category theory being done by by people such as Josh Shinever of Uber and Marco Rodriguez that I'm kind of interested to see how this can take, you know, graphs and graph databases to sort of the next level. You know, The second trend that I'm very interested in is, I think, data privacy. Let's be honest, you know, data privacy concerns and regulations around them aren't going to go away anytime soon. Uh, there's going to be more of them that are become more and more strict, so I'm going to be very interested from a, kind of a societal aspect, how we're going to be able to balance our desire for these sort of hyper-personalized experiences with this desire to maintain security and control of our information. You know, it's not that the two are in direct competition to, with one another, but there's definitely a bit of a push and pull that has to go on in order to solve these sorts of problems. And I think the last one is is the convergence of of big data, graph databases, distributed systems with recent improvements with like AI and ML and how we can start using all of this data we've been collecting for all this big data we've been collecting for years and years to really start making it more than just data and turning it into information and, and then into insight. That we can actually be able to use to drive. I think we're already working down that path. You know, it'd be very interesting. I'll be interested to see how that kind of progresses over the next couple of years, specifically in the area of explainable AI. This is area the area that kind of I kind of find fascinating is this ability to you know make systems you know AI and ML based systems where their behavior is really more intelligible by humans. A lot of you know AI ML models today they're there's no way that a person can look at it and really understand what it's doing. And I think being able to kind of create that explainable AI, would be really helpful. And also, uh, you know, kind of on a selfish note, I think this is an area where graphs uh, particularly can, can play a very good part in providing context and not only the inputs, but also the outputs of the model and maintaining how where you know, where the provenance of the data being used came from.
0: Yeah. Those are very, very interesting insights. And I definitely agree with you that uh, actually like a lot of, People with deep expertise in in the theory and, uh, and MLSI ML uh, side certainly lacks the understanding of you know best practice in uh, data engineering in distributed system and I guess like this type of conversation where they learn about you know different graph database tools like Cassandra Kafka you know Spark uh, I guess like that ex- exposure is gonna definitely be very very helpful to push that that movement uh, that conversion of the distributed system world and and the uh, machine learning world. Know, together to enable a seamless development of AI power products, right? Yeah, so so Dave, at this part of our conversation, I want to move on to the final closing segment, in which I'm going to ask you uh, three rapid-fire questions, and you can give concise answers for, for the listeners. Number one, uh, name three people in the big data and distributed architecture universe whose work you admire.
1: Yeah, uh, I think the first person I would talk about there is probably Martin Fowler of ThoughtWorks. Um, you know, he's a software developer, author, writer. I don't know how many books he's written, but, you know, uh, some of his famous ones are, are, you know, Patterns of Enterprise Applications and, and uh, Refactoring. You know, he's an original signatory of the Agile Manifesto. And really, I, I, I really appreciate his thought leadership in the areas of kind of domain-driven design, microservices, and other distributed architecture topics. The second one would be uh, Martin Kleppman. He is a researcher and distributed uh, systems lecturer in the mm-hmm. University of Cambridge. Uh, he's an author of probably one of, if not my favorite tech book out there, it's called, it's by O'Reilly, it's called Designing Data Intensive Architectures. Mm-hmm. And I really think that that's a book that should be you know, a must read for pretty much any, any software developer, and especially any that's really interested in dealing with distributed architectures and data design. Because it's, it's not necessarily, it's, it's a very broad look at a variety of different data technologies out there, why the design decisions were made that were made, and some of the trade-offs and things that came along with those sorts of patterns. Um, and the last one I, I, I'd kind of call out would be Andrew Eng, professor at Stanford, co-founder of, of Google Brain, chief scientist at Baidu, you know, co-founder of Carcera. You know, I, I really appreciate his focus on making ML and AI approachable for normal people there's this kind of technical or technological barrier that comes up when you start talking about ML and AI. And I, I really appreciate his drive to make those accessible to both technical and non-technical people through things uh, such as his course, his, his Coursera course of AI for everyone.
0: Uh, number two, what is one book that you would recommend for people who want to uh, develop better engineering lessons?
1: I I have a hard time coming up with maybe just one book here, but I'd say probably from a technical book, the one I would probably recommend, especially anybody early on in their career is Pragmatic Programmer by uh, Andrew Hunt and David Thomas. It provides a great overview of kind of the core thinking process required to be a successful software craftsman. You know, it may not be the most technical uh, of manuals out there, but I think it really provides a good set of reminders and goalposts as to what you need to do to be a true software craftsman and what you should strive to work after. From a non-technical perspective, uh, one of the other books I, I highly recommend uh, people read is Five Dysfunctions of a Team by Patrick Lencioni, because I think one of the critical skills that I've seen from successful engineers uh, that really discern successful developers and engineers from unsuccessful ones is how well they are able to be a good member of a team, how well they're able to work with other people to help solve problems and really to help Push the entire team forward versus you know uh, maybe themselves or things like that. And you know this book's targeted a little bit more at the at managers. But what I really find, what what I really think everybody that reads it can get out of it is what does it take to be a better team member? And then the other kind of crucial part, especially for a personal perspective, is how to spot when you're on a bad team. How to spot when you're on a team that is not that basically has these dysfunctions and is not going to work well how to potentially approach working uh, through some of those those problems, as well as the fact that, you know, sometimes you're on a team, it's dysfunctional and you just need to move on to a different team. And then I, I'm going to throw one last one in there. It's kind of a fun one, uh, which is how to absurd scientific advice for common real world problems. Uh, it's by the author is Randall Monroe. He's the, the guy who does XKCD. I, I really find this book a very lighthearted look at basically complex mathematical and scientific solutions to absurd problems like how much will it cost to put a lava moat around my house?
0: Yeah, thanks for all these uh, diverse recommendations that broad spectrum of readers. Finally, imagine that you send out a single tweet to all the uh, aspiring software architects on Twitter. What could you tweet
1: about? I think if I, want, if I had one tweet, uh, I would probably talk, I probably want to talk about, you know, how all, people are, all problems are people problems. If you want to solve a problem, start at the user and work towards the solution, not the other way around. Um, you know, as technologists, we all love to throw technology at a problem to answer it. However, that's not always the best solution. You know, a lot of times we really love to throw the newest and, and most interesting technology towards a problem, but really to succeed, we first need to understand and empathize with the user's pain and then work backwards to what is the right solution to the problem versus basically trying to start with an answer and then start with a preconceived technological solution to a problem and work and try to make those two things fit.
0: And so I think that's a, that's a brilliant way to conclude our interview. So yeah, Dip, I really enjoy our conversation, learning about you know, your educational background in um, engineering some of your work across you know, startups and big tech companies building distributed data architecture, uh, your thought leadership on best practices in dealing with um, graph databases, your book of mining that soon to be finished, and some of the trends and, and predictions that you're most excited about regarding the domain of big data uh, distributed system. And I'll be sure to include all the uh, resources and, and recommendations that uh, we have discussed in this interview into the show notes. So listeners can have a chance to check it out and explore both the time um, uh, and availability. Uh, so Deb, I uh, appreciate you spending time with me today and hope you have uh, a great rest of your day.
1: Thank you very much for having me. It was a great time.
0: Well, that's the wrap for another episode of Datacast. Hopefully you have learned something insightful and interesting from my guest today. You can read the show notes from the podcast website at datacast.simplecast.fm If you want to get instant updates when a new episode is released, either follow me on Twitter or subscribe to my newsletter on my website jameskelly.com. It is my greatest pleasure that you listen to this podcast and take advantage of the data revolution coming upon us Goodbye for now